our new series here, we're calling it Reality Checks. And I just want to do simple teaching. I don't want us to get spooky. We are Pentecostals. We're charismatics. We love the move of the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God every service. We just don't always showboat it. Uh, if you are sensitive enough to the Spirit of God, He can minister to you. He can set you free. We always are adjusting our messages based on what the Holy Ghost wants. I, I'm not against laying hands on people and watching the power of God fall. I'm not against prophecy. But I've pastored charismatics long enough to know how easy it is to get goofy. Baptist pastors don't have to worry about their people coming up with prophylies or having visions trying to steer the pastor. Baptists don't deal with that because that's not part of their doctrine. They got other issues they deal with, but they don't deal with false prophets or nut jobs. They got their own issues, but not that. So I try to lean against this stuff sometimes. And if we could just um, have a solid foundation of reality, it would go a long way to allowing the Holy Spirit to use us with a lot more steadfastness and accuracy. So that's why we're doing this reality checks. Just bring us back to reality. Get us out of la-la land, goofy land. Get us out of uh, the mystical realm. And let's just, I call it boots on the ground Christianity. Where does the rubber meet the road? What's the secrets to longevity? Because if you hadn't noticed, all the great charismatics, they burn out. And even Christian television cycles through. There's very few folks that have been on Christian television for 30 and 40 years. But the long runners were like Billy Graham and Reinhard Bonnke. Dr. David Jeremiah, a lot of these guys were denominational. They just slow and steady won the race. Amen. So tonight we're going to talk about relationships, and we're going to cover the gamut. We could certainly take six months and deal with every segment and every relationship you could ever have because the Bible does teach us how to manage every kind of relationship from our boss to our employee to anybody older than us. The Bible even tells us to honor all men. That's how to treat everybody. But that's not the same honor we honor the king with. That's not the same honor we honor mom and dad with. It's not the same honor we honor the elders with. It's not the same honor we would honor our spouse with or the Lord Jesus, but we do honor all men. But I want to kind of build a little bit of a foundation first so that as we kind of start to look at different relationships, you can see how the rules apply. Understand this, that Everything we do for the kingdom is communicated through laws and commandments. And if we're not careful, especially if we get real mystical, the last thing we want is restraint. The last thing charismatics often want is a law telling them that's not right. But I, I do remind you, even this dispensation of grace called the New Testament, there's 1,150 New Testament commandments. There's only 8,000 New Testament verses, which means every eight verses you're reading another commandment. So for all this grace and all this Holy Spirit we're supposed to be under, you can't go seven steps without the law correcting you. <laughs> you, can't, you can't go too far without the Bible saying, and don't do that, but do do this, but don't do that, and don't forget to do this, but please stop doing that. You can't, it just lets you know the Lord just doesn't trust us very much if we can't go seven verses without him correcting. And this is really like guardrails or you and I driving our car. Nobody ever complains that the roads are so legalistic. You mean I'm supposed to steer and use my brakes? 
and my turn signal, not if you're from Overton County, no, or Putnam County, or Jackson, or DeKalb, or Cumberland, or Smith. Never mind. Don't worry about your, the Africans call it your indicator. I don't know why we call it a blinker. Now that I say blinker, it just sounds degenerate. <laughs> so let's go back to the, the Word of God. The Bible commands us how we, have, how we are to have relationships with each other. So you get to the very beginning of God's interaction with man and the giving of the law on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and God gives Moses the famous Ten Commandments, right? And there are four laws on one table of stone and six laws on the other table of stone. And the first four laws command us how we are to love God. Because you cannot communicate love without laws. You can't do it. You can't demonstrate love without laws. Love isn't some just raw emotion. Because if it was just a raw emotion, when you got tired of love or it wore out, you'd just up and quit. And you'd end up violating one of the laws of God to go seek out love somewhere else. And in the end, we'd either call you a gigolo or a floozy because you were looking at love in a hundred different places and not able to find any. So then the next six commandments of the law talk to us and command us how we're to love our neighbor. Because if you remember, Jesus said, what are the greatest commandments? And the wise uh, scribes said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, which is likened to the first, is love your neighbor as yourself. That was demonstrated on the Ten Commandments. How to love God on one table of stone. How to love your neighbor on the other table of stone. So hopefully you know the other six commandments. Number five, or the first of the human commandments, is honor your father and mother. And that is the first commandment concerning relationships because your very first neighbors are your mom and dad. You don't get any more neighborly than growing inside a human being <laughs> and then sitting in her lap for the first two and a half years of your life. So the very first law we learn is in the most important relationship we're given in life, which is with mom and dad. And so from our relationship with mom and dad, all of our other relationships have a framework. Here's the deal. If you don't learn to honor your mother and father while you're at home, you'll always be a dishonorable person. And this is why raising teenagers can be so challenging because teenagers don't, they don't fully understand, not because they're dumb, but because they don't have life perspective or the elevation of experience to look down and see the bigger picture. Teenagers don't realize everything mom and dad went into or put into getting you this far in life. Teenagers are just clueless. All they're worried about is that cute girl or that cute guy because that's the sin nature. So teenagers don't realize, and we, let, we have our youth in here tonight, so I guess we'll steer that direction a little bit. You, you don't realize that mom and dad believe God for you, that we couldn't get pregnant, that we sought God for months, sometimes years, we believe God for you. We sought fertility doctors for you. We prayed. We fasted. We sowed big offerings and special offerings, believing God for you. And then the day came when the, the pregnancy test was positive and we rejoiced and wept. And then the doctor said, you may not carry this baby to term. And we said, oh, yes, we will. 
I'll make a fool out of you, doctor, if you don't shut your mouth, because this baby will live and not die. And then, then there's complications and just gestational diabetes. We got to speak to that. And then our feet swell. Then we got morning sickness. Then we get big as a house. And then we, and then, yeah, and hot flashes and, and wearing, you know, tents around our clothing and waddling, you know, for this thing we believe God for. And then, then we get to deliver you ladies. I'm speaking for you. Then they deliver the baby. Then there's a threat that you may lose your wife because she's torn something. And, and so you've got to believe God that mama doesn't die because I can't raise this kid on my own. And then we get the baby and then we, then we have trouble breastfeeding. So now we've got to have a lactician uh, assistant and we go through this and then we've got to pump and then we've got to well, they put on formula. And it's a hard two or three years. And dad sleep through the night for those two or three years. <laughs> At least brother Chad did and does. <laughs> right, brother Chad? Yeah, he's like, those first years of all my kids were easy. And Tammy says, I will kill you in your sleep. <laughs> and then you pray for those kids that they, they fear God and they give you their heart. You pray for those kids that they get born again at a young age and spirit filled and they get everything out of Sunday school and Bible school and that they learn the songs and that they learn to walk and that they're not like a little Johnny Dum Dum, but they have a pretty good intellect and they can learn and read and write and play good. And you're praying that everything turns out right. And then you sacrifice to buy them clothes. And, and then all of a sudden they turn 12 and 13 and just go fully retarded and think they know everything. I like what my friend, Pastor Chris Holland, he told his boys, he said, boy, I made you and I can make another. Talk to your mother that way again. Your brother will be without a brother. And usually straightens out those boys. So teenagers don't get that everything goes into getting you here and keeping you alive. And we don't do it for you to treat us the way American teenagers think. Amen. It's pretty good preaching so far. I don't even have a teenager yet. I'm already wanting to spank one of them. Just, this is a preemptive strike. Daddy, I'm not a teenager yet. I don't care. I'm going to wear it out. You're going to be 12 for seven years. <laughs> not a teenager. <laughs> so from the very beginning, God's given us laws on how to have relationships. And our relationship with our parents is totally built on honor. And mom and dad, it's our job to teach them what honor looks like. How do they honor us? Because if we don't teach them honor, nobody else will. Teachers can't, won't, can't expect the neighbor kid to do it. Grandma doesn't know. Grandmas are the worst kind of moms because they're grandmas. They're not meant to be moms. They're not going to teach honor. They're going to teach them how to sneak candy and spend a lot of money. That's what grandmas do. Go to secret Dunkin' Donut rendezvous and Krispy Kremes. Our kids told on my mom, Bo K, we were driving through Knoxville, and we told them, Bo, that's my mom's grandma named Bo. No sugar. Okay. And we drive through Knoxville and Lydia, she was like four or five. She said, Bo took us to that place and his Krispy Kreme. It's like, uh-huh. Siri, call mom, Cell. My mom's about to be grounded for a couple months. Our first relationship has rules and we honor mom and dad. And it's the first commandment with promise, according to Paul, that you may live a long life. And it won't be mom and dad that kill you, though they'll talk about it. Because if you don't learn how to honor mom and dad, you'll never have honor for any other relationship the rest of your life, unless you get taught it later in life, which is always going to be much harder than just catching it the first time. Because if you'll dishonor the two people that have given more than anybody ever will, you'll dishonor 
anybody you'll ever meet. Because if you miss the point of honor, you'll always live for self. And Jesus said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. And people that fail to learn how to honor mom and dad and to be thankful and appreciative and, and just honestly say, mom and dad, I don't know everything you did for me to keep me alive, but thank you. And honestly, kids don't appreciate it till they have their own kids and realize my parents went through the same thing of praying for me and sacrificing. And even when they put me to bed, they stayed up talking about me and fretting over the money. And where's the college money going to come from? And we got to get them a new car. And, and they've got to make sure we pray that person out of their life and pray this person, Lord God, get, let them have your heart. Let them have your heart. And they wring their hands over our teenagers. And that's why moms and dads can't handle it when teenagers act like total punks. I've been watching a lot of Indian Premier League cricket right now. And I look at that cricket bat and I think, that's a good disciplinary tool right there. <laughs> I was FaceTiming with England today and my friend Chris Parker, we were talking cricket because he used to play. He said, mate, the real cricket paddles are made out of willow wrapped in leather. And I thought, that'll wear a kid's rear end out. I think we're going to order one this weekend. Get it out of Pakistan. I think it'll hurt more coming out of Pakistan. <laughs> So we got to learn to honor mom and dad. And those of us that are parenting, we have to teach our children honor. Honor means you value what's in your life. And you ought to teach your kids, to some degree, everything you're doing for them so they can appreciate it. Our kids need to be raised to be thankful. That establishes the first relationship. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. If you teach your kids or just allow them to love themselves, you will set them up for destruction. You got to teach your kids to be servants because if they'll be servants the rest of their life, they'll always be promoted. If they always live for self, they'll be a dead end trap. They'll go nowhere and they will have arrived by the time they were 13 or 14. So the second commandment is a pretty good one. How to love your neighbor. Don't kill. That's pretty good. Notice it comes right after honor your mother and father. And I think that thou shalt not murder is talking to mom and dad looking back at the kids. Thou shalt not murder. Kids, honor mom and dad. Mom and dad, thou shalt not murder. Well, Lord, you made gerbils. They eat their children. Can't we eat our children? No, no, you can't do that. And you can't kill them either. So here's a commandment. Did you know you can't kill people? Yeah, it's murder. Don't murder each other. Because if you go by your emotions, and remember most people think love is emotions, how many crimes are crimes of passion? But this commandment holds you in restraint. It says, no, no, as much as you'd like to take that shotgun to your wife's adulterous lover, you can't. Thou shalt not murder. Then it says, don't steal. Well, when you love somebody, you don't steal from them. You don't steal their thunder. You got to make sure your kids don't rob each other's thunder or, you know, steal their excitement and joy when they want to tell the story. Then the older sibling jumps in and says, I'll tell it. And they steal from their sibling. You got to wear that thing out because that's theft too. Don't lie. Did you know when you love somebody, you don't lie? You don't lie to them. That would also come back to honoring mom and dad. When you honor mom and dad, you don't lie to them. Lies will always come out. And if you get into the habit of lying, it'll be a hard habit to break and it'll destroy your life. Your reputation will go before you and nobody will trust you. Amen. Part of honor is you don't lie. The thing we've prayed for all of our kids since before they were born, because Dr. Barclay taught us it, and then we expanded upon it, was, Lord, we pray that our children give us their heart. And then we added, they hide nothing from us. They bring everything to us. They never lie to us. They're not ashamed, and they don't, they're not afraid. They bring us everything so we can fix it. 
And our kids always have. We've only caught them sneaking maybe two or three times, and they were under such gross conviction. We're just praying it keeps working into their teenage years. They were sneaking candy. We caught Lydia with some wrappers in her bed. That's okay in my book. I mean, it's like if that's the worst thing you're doing sneaking and we can nip it in the bud at five, we're doing all right. Now, our kids aren't perfect, but we do pray a lot for them so they get better. So we're even praying now when they're still young and relatively innocent. They never lie to us. They never lie to us. They bring everything to us. They always tell us the truth. Because when you can trust a kid, you can release them into the world. But when you can't trust a kid, you know they're going to destroy themselves. And a mom's heart can't handle that. A dad's heart can't handle that. Yeah. The thought of if they'll lie to me, they'll lie to their boss. If they'll lie to me, they'll lie to their professor. If they'll lie to me, they'll lie to their best friend. And that just makes my kid a liar. What do liars do? They lie. So do you want to have the reputation of being a liar? Love says if you love somebody, you don't lie to them. You're honest. Uh, You don't commit adultery. That's another way. Well, that comes back to your marriage now. That's another neighbor. Did you know your spouse is your neighbor? You don't commit adultery. Because if you love her, you don't commit adultery. Uh, Now, I'm not a big David Beckham fan, but David Beckham and Posh Spice or whatever Spice Girl he married like 30 years ago. They're pagans as far as I could tell. If you know who Beckham is, famous footballer from England, and then his wife, who's an old rock and roll star. Uh, He's a good-looking guy. She's a good-looking girl. They're pagans. But they asked him in an interview about four or five years ago that I read, they said, you guys have been married 25 years. You've never had any scandal or adultery. Surely you've been tempted to run out on your wife. And David Beckham, a pagan football soccer player, he said, no, I've never been tempted. That's my best friend. You don't do that stuff to your best friend. I thought, he's better than most preachers in America. He's better than some preachers I personally know because they have run out on their wife. He's got this commandment working in his life and preachers can't even handle it because they won't even preach it because, you know, that might be the law. That might be legalistic. And, you know, we're free from that. And then the 10th commandment is don't covet. Don't just don't lust. Cheer for your neighbor. Don't lust after what they have. Don't get jealous over what they have. Cheer for them. Be glad that they've got it. So these 10 commandments are the beginning and the foundation of how we love our neighbors as ourselves, and how we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But this also tells us, like I said previously, this means love is taught via commandment. We teach our kids what love looks like. We teach them what honor looks like. We teach our kids that, you know, when you love mommy, you make her a card that says, I love you, mommy. And they learn that and they get that in their heart and then they do it without being told. They're always writing cards for mommy. They're always drawing pictures for me that says, I love you, daddy, or I love you, mommy. You're the world's best mommy. You're the world's best daddy. You teach them what that expression looks like. And it takes laws and commandments. This is pretty common sense, but you wouldn't believe the the level of lunacy we're facing in the body of Christ thanks to all the hyper-grace heresy that came in and said, grace, 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 grace. Can't be any work. Well, how did you get here tonight? You drove, you walked. I mean, even, even a Jew will turn his ignition on the Sabbath. 
It's lunacy to say there's not some kind of work involved. You can't have a, a worthwhile, God-honoring relationship with anybody without commandments and requests. Because even if you're in love with somebody and you're sitting there for a long time, you're going to eventually ask somebody something. Hey, can you get this for me? Would you mind to do that? Or if your spouse is in pain, honey, can I pray for you? Would you pray for me? Would you rub my neck? Could you get me some Tylenol? Would you mind to get me something to drink? There's going to be some kind of command given, and you're going to obey it. It's going to be a work, but it's going to demonstrate your love. I mean, what do we think love is? We've lost our marbles thinking love can just be... I mean, if you did a card, you've got to write it got to sign it. That takes work. If you look at stamp, that takes work. You had to think. For some people, that's a lot of work. Which card do I want to communicate my love with? Love must be taught via commandments. Therefore, love is also a work. Try to sort that out in your doctrine. Love is a work. Sometimes, I tell you as a pastor, it takes work to love God's people. You just got to pray for them. Did you know that when I pray for you, it burns time I would spend doing something else? Sometimes sheep need undivided attention, so it's not like I can cut my grass or go caving and intercede for them at the same time. I have to give them devoted time on my knees, on a couch somewhere, or in my bedroom, or here at the sanctuary. Serving God takes work. It exerts energy. It consumes time. How else do you define work? Did you ever have physics? <laughs> We're dealing with moronacy, lunacy. I don't have terms for it. But if we stop and think about it, love is work. You love your kids. It takes work. You love your spouse. Marriage takes work. Like Pastor Ronnie said, marriage is made in heaven, but it's beat out in the earth. That's work. <laughs> Look at 1 John. That's where I said we needed to go. 1 John chapter 3. We are talking about relationships. 1 John three eighteen. My little children... Let us not love in word, that is the word logos, or written. Let's not just love with love letters, neither in tongue, that is what we say. Let us love in action and in truth. Let our actions and our works demonstrate our love. So we're building this bigger picture to see how do our relationships work. Our relationships with anybody on planet Earth should honor them and should demonstrate love. There are scriptures that teach us through commandments how we deal with every type of human being. And by type, I mean in their relationship towards you. Are they hostile? Are they over you in the things of employment? Are they beneath you in the things of family? Are they equal to you in the things of society? Where are they at in, in relative to the kingdom's hierarchy? Where are they in relation to you in terms of civil authority? The scriptures tell us how to relate to every person. It's simple, boots-on-the-ground Christianity. It all takes work. It takes work to relate and submit to your professor. It takes work to relate and please your boss. It takes work to lead your household and to do it right. It takes work to talk to the total stranger. It takes work to be nice to the lady who's checking you out at Walmart. All these things take work. Amen. Look at uh, 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we do nothing. Because doing nothing is not grievous. 
This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So the love of God requires us to obey commands. And remember, there's 1,100 of them in the New Testament. One every eight verses. <laughs> and there are so many that deal with our relationships. And our relationships should all personify the love of God. Uh, but as we've said and alluded to in past services, there are six, depends on how you divide it, seven reasons to excommunicate Christians. That teaches me as a pastor how to relate to a heretic or an unrepentant sinner or someone who's schismatic or divisive or someone who's sowing discord. It shows me how to relate to them, and I still have to do it in the love of God. And it still takes work to grab a schismatic Christian who won't repent of their adultery and say, listen, I've dealt with you two or three times. The elders have come to you. you got an option. You either repent now or I expose you Sunday morning according to Matthew 18. Which is it? That's how the Bible teaches me to relate to that person. And that's a lot of work because it isn't easy to do. Do you know how uncomfortable it is to tell somebody, if you don't repent, I'm kicking you out of my church? And yet that's the love of God and it's a commandment. And there's at least six, again, depends on how you want to divide it, maybe seven reasons to excommunicate Christians from a local church. It's called the doctrine of church discipline, and most pastors won't touch it with a 10-foot pole because we're too desperate for warm bodies and pulses. So we'll let any Tom, Dick, or Harry come in here and mess the body of Christ up rather than judging them for their infidelity, adultery, incest, perversion, schism, heresy, or backbiting. All right? 1 John uh, 5... Mm, Actually, John, I'm sorry, it's John 15. Let's go John 14. Just to look at a couple verses now. It's not uncommon to find Christians who don't want to have any work to do. I got a good friend of mine, a pastor. He says he's got this lady. She says, he says she's a real piece of work. She is so anti-works, she refuses to do anything but sit in a service. Because anything apart from that is works. She won't do ministry of helps because that's works and we're not saved by works. And he says, well, we're not talking salvation. We're talking about obeying God. It's works and we're free from works. And I said, pastor, let me come preach for you. <laughs> I don't even want an offering. I want to do this just for the pleasure of doing it. Let me come. I'll be sweet. I'll be sweet about it. I'll teach a message on the ministry of helps. And I'll run through the 27 New Testament verses that talk about maintaining good works. And by the time this is all said and done, this lazy Jezebel will know where she stands with God. And you may be delivered. <laughs> the funny thing is she likes to try to prophesy over church members after service, but that's a work. She won't lift a finger, but she will lift a tongue as long as she can control. So typical. All right. I've seen this before. I've smelled it. I can diagnose this. That's a Jezebel. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, do nothing. Keep my commandments. The wonderful thing about the commandments of God is every one of them is bundled with all the grace and anointing you need to obey it. Because the moment the Lord, through the Holy Ghost, illuminates that command, here's one of those 1,100, comes all the power you need to obey it. Amen. All right, Lord, if you say, keep my commandments, show me which ones to keep, and I'll do the best I can, Lord. Help me to do it. 
It's that simple. If you love Jesus, you just keep his commands. Look at verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. When we witness, we should stop asking people if they love Jesus because most of the time they're just going to lie to you. Because they're going to say they do because that's the right answer, but it's not the honest answer because the honest answer is they don't love God because they don't do anything he says. You can't say you love God and not obey the Bible. Jesus Christ just said that. He that has my commandments and keeps them, that's the guy or gal that loves me. And what we're saying is all these, uh, all these laws that the Lord is giving us concerning relationships, we can demonstrate to the Lord that we love him by how we relate to one another. And you can't say you love God if you don't keep his commandments concerning your boss. And you can't say you love the Lord if you don't keep his commandments concerning mom and dad or your children or your spouse. You're going to start to demonstrate you maybe like the Lord a whole lot, but you're not really committed to him. And we're religious folks here in the South. We know what the right answer looks like. We know what the facade looks like. We're smart enough to speak Christianese. I coined a new term this week. I call it sheepese. It's the language of the sheep. <laughs> he says, uh, he that loves me shall be loved of my father and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So before God can love you and manifest himself to you, you got to keep his commandments. That's the process of that verse. He that has my commandments, he's delivered them to all of us and keeps them. He it is that loves me and he that loves me, which is demonstrated by your ability to keep the commands, him will be my, my father love and I'll love him too. So what happens if you don't keep the commandments of God? I know Jesus loves everybody, but he just says, if you keep my commandments, I'll love you too. So what if you don't keep the commandments? Is there a different level of love? Is it a higher degree? Is there a love I'll die for you, but other than that, uh? Interpret it for yourself. It is a conditional promise. And he will manifest himself to us. Uh, look at... John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. So part of the way we keep the commandments of God is walk, uh, keep the love of God is by keeping the commandments. And if we keep the commandments, we keep the love of God hot. This is where it applies to our relationships. In your relationships in life, whether it be with fellow student, lab partner, roommate, dorm mate, boss, employee, co-worker, you're going to have some relationships that are going to elicit some less than savory emotions. And those emotions will daydream actions. And the commandments of God will restrain you. And by doing the commandments of God, you will manifest the love of God towards that co-worker, that roommate, that dorm mate, that lab mate, that professor, that employee, that employer, that third child, that aunt, you pick, take your pick. We need the commandments of God in our relationships because if we're left to our own devices, we may start all over like Cain and Abel and take up a rock and club someone in the back of the head and say, I'm a brother's keeper. Where's your brother? I don't know. Where's your lab mate? I don't know. Where's that professor? I don't know. Where's your fourth child? I had four. I don't remember having four. <laughs> God gives commands for how to honor him with our relationships. And by honoring God, by obeying these commands, we'll manifest the love of God in all these relationships. Even if I've had to kick out a church member, that's still the love of God. 
Now, to, to the, the non-so-renewed mind, how was that the love of God? Because I protected all of you. You forget about the 99. Everybody wants to magnify and exalt the one. What about the 99? I thought we were Marxists. I thought it was all about the greater good. Here it is, the greater good. Yeah, I will gladly kick out a reprobate or a, a, a wolf or a heretic or someone who's moving among our young ladies as a pervert, I'll gladly publicly excommunicate them to protect you. I'll take that hit. I take the hit on social media, but I'm not on social media, so it's like I don't go to that middle school. So I don't care what they say about me at that adult middle school for middle-aged, overweight white women. <laughs> Gab all you want. I don't go to your school. I graduated a long time ago. I put away childish things, and I became a man quit reasoning as a child. So we have these commandments, and when we obey them, it brings the love of God into that relationship. Not the love of man, not the love of flesh, not the love of lust, not the love of acceptance, the love of God. That's why we study the scriptures to see what the commands are for every relationship. If you'll search out the scriptures, they'll tell you how to handle every situation, and it will not care about your emotions at all. It will not care about your past history. It won't care about your soul ties. It won't care about your track record. It won't care about where you're coming from. It won't care about none of that. It's just the truth and you just obey it. Sometimes you need accountability partners because they can look into that relationship and say, mm, that's not good. You need to walk away or no, you need to stay committed to that. You don't understand. No, I don't. And that's a good thing for you because I'm not emotionally entangled like you are. The word is the word is the word. The word of God is true. It does not care about you. It just is true. And if you'll obey it, you'll go further with God. So we obey it. God's word will teach us how to relate to our bosses, our employees, parents, children, friends, enemies. There's even scriptures on how you relate to your enemies. Pray for them. Don't curse them. God will make a table for you in the presence of your enemies. So pray for that banquet table and pray that they be born again. The Bible teaches us how to relate to pastors and elders. There are rules that govern our relationships and they are given to obey in spite of our emotions. I'd say they're given because of our emotions. Because when somebody betrays you, the natural human inclination is either to fall apart or to get vengeance. And the Bible comes along and gives you a command with how to handle that relationship. Forgive. Pray for. If you heard they said something about you, the Bible says go to them. If they've sinned against you, go to them. Don't post it on immature Facebook. Go to them. Be mature. There's not a single example or a single relationship issue the Bible won't address and give you the way of God out of it. And in obeying the word, you're automatically manifesting the love of God. It won't feel like social media love. It won't feel like LGBTQ plus love. That usually requires surgery when you're done, by the way. It won't feel like high school love because that's more like elementary school love when I was growing up. It'll feel like the God kind of love and you'll have a sense of confidence and boldness and you'll know I'm clean. And that's a rare thing to come by these days. But I'm clean because I obeyed God when I really wanted to slander or gossip or get vengeance or give him a piece of my mind. If you'll obey these commandments, they'll keep you safe. These, these commandments in our relationships are emotional guardrails so your life doesn't go off the track. And we need them. 
Every one of us, even the most mature of us, we've had to consult the scriptures to know how to handle situations. The best one we could all practice is, he that answers a matter before he hears it is a fool. So just get some intel before you go say anything about anything. Be slow to speak, quick to hear. The key to our relationships is you seek to honor God in every one of them. And if you honor God in all your relationships, you will never be ashamed of any of them. You won't have any regrets. It'd be a good place to get in life where you don't have any regrets. You've got nothing to repent of 20 years later. You can say, to the best of my ability, I can say with a clear conscience, I've honored God in all my relationships. I honored all my professors, all my teachers. I honored all my coaches. I honored all my bosses. I honored all my coworkers. I honored every police officer that ever pulled me over for driving way too slow and using my blinker or not using my blinker. I honored every human being I ever come in contact with. Hard to do that on social media. Look at 1 Timothy. Let's look at a couple lists. I like lists because lists give me something to check off. I'm a Holy Ghost guy, but you can't live in the spirit unless you're a nut job or a witch. So for the rest of us that just are normal and the Lord uses, I like lists. You know what I think is funny? You see these airline pilots who have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of airtime. And before every flight, if you ever look in there, they let you look in there now. They used to really keep it tight after 9-11. Now you can still steal a peek. They have a checklist. For the plane they are trained on, retrained on and fly every day like they drive a car to work. And they still have a checklist they go through so that you fly and don't die. They check it because it's checks and balances and they don't want to die either. And if someone that experienced with that much, most of these guys are military pilots to begin with. They were flying F-35s and F-22s before they got behind a 747. It just doesn't quite handle like an F-22 Raptor. (laughs) Feels a little sluggish. (laughs) Uh, uh, If they got to have a checklist, you guys know we do. So I thank God for checklists. They'll make sure you finish your race. 1 Timothy 5.1. Here's a list of some things, some quick do's and don'ts on some relationships just to show you because I want to get to dating relationships, and that's kind of what we'll wrap up here in a few minutes. Because the rule for dating relationships is pretty easy. But let me look at some of these others real quick. How do I treat an elder? Lord, don't rebuke them. So here's a, what do we do with an elder? Well, number one, you don't rebuke an elder. But you entreat them as a father. That means you draw near to them. You have respect for them like an honor, a father. And that's not just a church elder like me or our elders but that's also any of our senior saints. We just buried Ma Creeble, or actually I should say we buried her. She's still in a box somewhere. We just had a memorial service. She'd be 93 years old. I pastored her for almost 15 years. I never once rebuked her. I didn't have to, didn't need to. Even if she was out of line, I would have never rebuked her because the Bible forbids me. I would, I would gently say, Ma, probably the most I ever got onto her. Ma, you need to let me help you. Ma, you and Nan need to tell me when you need something. You guys can't just be those stubborn little Yankee gals down in that 
holler, let me know when you need something. I'm commanded by God to take care of you. Ma? Yes, pastor. That's about as hard as I'd ever get with her because I have no business rebuking any elder. I never, Mr. John Smith, he died at 85, never rebuked him. Mama Reba, she's 85, never rebuked her because you don't rebuke elders. You treat them like fathers with utmost respect. To me, this is common sense. Not to an ignoramus though. Yeah. How about the younger men? You treat as brethren. So the young men in the church, you treat, you treat as brethren. You ever hold hands and make out with your brother? Big old deep French kissing on your brother? Amen. Guardrails. 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 Sometimes you need more than guardrails. You need barricades built out of gabion walls with catch basins. <laughs> the younger, excuse me, the elder women, you treat as mothers. So even some of these ladies that are older than me, except for maybe Miss Amy, she's much, much older than me, but I treat her as like a sister. Then I was the unexpected child 30 years later. <laughs> mama Eva, I treat as a mama. Miss Kimberly, I tease a little bit. Mama, uh, Mother Murdoch, I treat her as a mama, but I rag her a little bit too. But we spend a lot of time in Africa together. But she's still like a mama. Even as the pastor, I treat these ladies as mothers. Miss Sassy, Mr. Bill back there, he's a senior saint. I've never rebuked Mr. Bill. Treat him as a father, uh, as an elder saint of God. This is common sense. But this is telling us how we treat our relationships. This is for the kingdom. There are many other verses that deal with outsiders, but we should have the utmost respect for one another in here. Because this is God's family. It ought to be the best family on the block. Amen. Not full of hooligans and charlatans and ragamuffins, but sweet, obedient children who love and honor each other. The younger sisters, the younger you treat as sisters with all purity. So you know it's talking about not holding hands and making out with her, giving her the tongue, you know. Just want to be real clear on that. <laughs> making out with your sister. I know this is Tennessee. But it ain't Spencer Mountain. <laughs> oh, my goodness is right, Mother Murdoch. <laughs> oh, Lord of mercy. Then the third verse says, honor widows that are widows indeed. It teaches us how to treat widows. So here's another example. We have guardrails and rules for how to treat one another. Our subject is reality check, just relationships. We have to have the Word of God teach us how to treat each other. We have to have the Word of God teach us and instruct us because we don't know. We're animals apart from the Word of God. We're only part of civilization because we've inherited 2,000 years of Christianity. Other cultures that are not civilized, we call them third world or developing, and there's another PC word for it now. I don't care. I don't listen to it. But they have 70 wives. They sacrifice their children. They beat their kids with sticks and they rape babies because they aren't civilized. But we still have a Victorian puritanical influence that was inherited from the Catholics that goes all the way back to the early church. We have these mores from the word of God, how to treat people and respect life. Now our culture is regressing now and we're getting weird. But those of us that are Christians, and that's every one of us tonight, 
we stand on these firm so that we know how to treat one another. Ephesians 5, real quick. Let's look at marriage. Like I said, we could do several months of teaching just on relationships, but I want you to see there are laws in the Word of God. The Holy Ghost anoints us to obey them, and they teach us how to treat one another. When you're being raised up or you're raising children, you teach your children how to treat each other. You teach them how to be servants. You teach them how to prefer one another. You teach them to pray for one another. You teach them how to uh, be selfless. I taught Bud Bud a term I learned in uh, kindergarten and first grade at the Baptist school. I went to a Baptist school in Baton Rouge as a first grader. They taught us the term. It was a bad term. It was a pejorative. It was a slander, a slur. You didn't want to be a me firster. Oh, you didn't. Me firster. To the water fountain, me firster in line. No, no, no. We're not me firsters, children. Oh, no, no. Nobody wants to be me firster. Oh, no. I didn't realize it was Jesus' doctrine. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. So I taught Bud, we don't be a, want to be a me firster. Now he's like, no, I'm a me firster. So I got to work on him now. But that's a boy. You teach him what not to do. He's going to do it till he understands why not to do it. So I just heard him say today, nope, daddy, I'm a me firster. I'm going to order that cricket pattern now, and I'm going to wear that thing out. <laughs> when you get a home run in cricket, it's called knocked for six because you get six points when you go into the stands. I'm going to knock that rear end for six. <laughs> No, he doesn't need spankings like that. Ephesians 5, verse 21 says, Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So here's a law that teaches us how to respect one another. We submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. When we submit, we're not going to sue each other. When we submit, we're not going to slander each other. When we submit, we're going to prefer one another. When we submit, we're going to try to outserve one another. When we submit, we're going to look for areas to help each other. When we submit, we're looking to care for each other when we're down. That's a law. That shows us how to have healthy relationships with one another. If you were to obey this law, you couldn't be a peripheral Christian. Because peripheral Christians never get close enough to the rest of the body to submit one to another. So peripheral saints are in violation of the word of God. And peripheral saints prove they don't love God like their mouth says they do because Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. What's a commandment? Submit to one another. Well, you got to come to church to be able to have a relationship you can submit to. This is why one of my greatest concerns in our church is for the peripheral saints. They come, they worship, they may put money in the offering. Yay, but you're still a peripheral. What's wrong with you? Why don't you want to draw closer to the congregation? Why don't you want to draw closer to what God's doing here? I don't get that. I, I fear for our peripheral saints because they're content being on the periphery. That's where the fiery serpents always kill the people of God. That's where the crevices open up and swallow families, and you don't know where they went. It was on the periphery. A lot of folks love it out there, though. Just enough of God to keep the front side warm and just enough of the world to keep the back side cold. You're like a McDLT. You can't even figure out how to mix to keep the hot side hot and the cold side cold. That worked until they got upset about styrofoam. <laughs> Some of you are too young to remember when the global warming fight was all over styrofoam because back in those days, the concern was landfills. Landfills. You guys don't remember when the environmental fight was over landfills. When's the last time you heard any concern about a landfill? We've moved on to bigger fish. <laughs> Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Don't pick another one. Practice submitting to the one you've got in the Lord, not in sin. And then jump down to verse 25. Husbands, 
Here's the law. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So here's a law and a guardrail for our marriages. Men, you'll say, I don't know what to do. Well, here's a verse. Spend the rest of your life working on it. Love your wife just like Jesus Christ loves us. That'll take a long time to work. But you can demonstrate you love God by saying, Lord, help me love my wife like you love me. That's a commandment. That is a guardrail that shows you how to have a happy marriage. And it is the husband's job to love his wife with the love of God. The wife is nowhere in the New Testament commanded to love her husband with the agapeo love of God. Only the husband is because he represents Christ. She represents the church in the living allegory that is marriage. Women are designed to respond emotionally, compassionately, intimately to a husband's leading. This is why you don't fall for a man who's incapable of leading. This is why you don't fall for a man who doesn't love God more than you. Amen. I just, I'm just I read an article today. A Irish soccer coach had to apologize. He had to explain why his women's professional team lost with two goals back to back. And he made the statement. He said, well, women are different than men. They get a little bit emotional and they let their guard down and they were scored on twice. Well, the women got mad. <laughs> because he said women are different and they get a little emotional. And what did they do in response? <laughs> you can't make up this level of stupidity in the world. And it quoted one woman, some, you know, feminist. I was appalled. I felt like I was reading something from the 1930s. I'm surprised you can even read, princess. I mean, do you, do you see the irony? Let's just wrote, review it again. He said, my ladies got upset. Women are different than men. They got a little emotional on the first goal. They let their guard down. They got scored on again. And the women got upset at his statement that women get upset. If you'd have said that about men, men have been, eh, whatever. We'll do better next game, right? Right? Am I getting traded? What? <laughs> it's not like you said for punishment, I made them make me a sandwich or something. Because that would be misogynistic. <laughs> uh, love your wives with the love of God, and she'll respond as you need her to. But quit blaming her when you're the problem. Quit blaming her when you're the problem. The secret to a happy home is a man that loves God and his wife. You want to destroy your home, be an immature little weasel, a child. I'm going to take your toys and go home. Don't be that way. Now, let's talk about dating relationships real quick, because I'm almost out of time, and you guys have listened, and we've covered a lot. Go to 1 Corinthians 7, and uh, let's have this in the NIV, Holly. 1 Corinthians 7, and verse 32, NIV. Paul said, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, 
how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. Let's pause there. This is the same law that applies to dating relationships. So one of the concerns in those relationships and the question, how, how old do I need to be till I can date, daddy? How old can I be before I like a girl, daddy, or before I, a boy can ask me out, daddy? Well, we apply spiritual law. We don't apply social law. We don't apply cultural law because those things are always in flux. Every culture around the world is different. Every culture raises its children differently to a certain level of maturity at a different rate. Um, the West's young people are taking longer and longer and longer and longer to mature. In America now, I, don't, I can't remember, there's a huge statistic, 30 or 40% of 30-year-olds still live at home. That's a real problem. You're not going to be, I don't know, maybe you will be married living at home. Uh, our culture became uh, puritanical in its work ethic 500 years ago so that you struck out on your own and you established your own and you made a place for your spouse to live. So coming back to culture, we don't say, well, everybody else is dating because that means nothing, absolutely nothing. Well, it's our, our cultural norm. Well, do we really want to judge things by our cultural norms? Because cultural norm says trans kids are cool. Cultural norms 50 years ago said 35-year-old men married 17-year-old girls. We, are we going to do that? Do you want your 17-year-old dating a 35-year-old man? No. What's wrong with him? Why can't he find somebody his own age or within a 10-year window? So what we have to do is take it back to the Bible. So the question is, have you learned to be concerned for the things of the Lord? Or as the King James says, do you know how to please the Lord? When you've learned how to please the Lord and take care of yourself, now you're ready to date. Because if you don't know how to please the Lord, if you have yet to develop that kind of relationship with God, you're not equipped to have any kind of intimate relationship, even if it's just emotionally, because it's going to be, as Paul said in the NIV, you're going to have divided interests. We understand that the soul is, is like a commodity. It's both time and energy and emotion. And when you start dating, you divest from the things that are needful and you reinvest into things that are flighty. And by flighty, I don't mean airhead. I just mean they might be gone tomorrow. So a good litmus test for us in our, in our raising of our children or even our helping our singles who are uh, of age and maybe even have a career, a good test is what Paul said here. When you're unmarried, you learn how to care for the things of the Lord, how you might please the Lord. But when you're married, you now have to care for the things of the world, how you might please the spouse. So what happens if you get into marriage and you've never learned how to walk with God? You're not going to have any depth to fix marital problems that will arise no matter how wonderful the marriage is because you never learn how to walk with God. Now, the other problem is if you never learn how to please the Lord, you probably drew fell in love, courted, and married somebody else who doesn't know how to please the Lord. Because like attracts like. Which also goes to the, the, the point that we often make. Don't ever fall in love with somebody who doesn't love God more than you. Don't ever allow a man to court you who doesn't know God better than you, who isn't more interested in God than he is you. Don't ever pursue some girl who doesn't know God. Don't pursue a girl who's unstable. Don't pursue a girl who's had 50 boyfriends. 
She's unstable. And she will continue to be so until she learns how to please the Lord. So this is Paul's judgment. It's not Pastor Chris's. I often get shot because I'm the messenger. But I'm just building my doctrine from the Bible, which I thought we could all agree upon. That isn't that our common ground. So here, read it again. Verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. We could say an unmarried person, how he can please the Lord. So here's question number one. Have you learned how to walk with God and please him? Have you mastered pleasing God? Didn't say perfect. Didn't say you didn't make mistakes. But part of learning how to please the Lord is how to beat condemnation when you fall. Because if you haven't learned how to do that, you don't need the distraction of a romantic interest yet. You're not mature enough. I don't care if you're 40. 40 40-year-olds get divorced all the time because they're immature. Amen. The foundation requirement for any kind of romantic interest is that you first are more in love with Jesus and you're not emotionally needy or insecure. Because what will happen is you'll fall in love with somebody who fills the void of neediness and insecurity, and it won't last very long. Only Jesus Christ in a relationship with him will permanently fix any immaturity, any insecurity. And that's why we promote a relationship with him first. So it's not Pastor Chris getting in your way. It's your lack of walk with Jesus that's failing you. So hear my perspective. There's 200 plus of you. I have been doing marriage meetings for 15 years. I have counseled or met with marriages that have been together 35 and 40 years. I have married folks. I've pre-married counseled. I have walked people through divorces. I've seen every spectrum along the way. I've been able to mix that with both my science background of observation and the Holy Ghost and Scripture, and I know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And you'd rather wait an extra two or three years than marry someone in haste and be divorced in five with two kids. You'd rather cool your jets, trust God, wait for God, wait for his timing, than just jump on some hot stud or young gal that uh, just tickles your fancy and, and is some kind of false bomb over whatever broken soul you may have incurred and then find yourself in divorce court after two and a half years, three years, and the last year was living hell. And oh, by the way, she's pregnant again. You don't want that. No. Last thing you want to do is raise your child with a split family, not knowing where that crazy guy's going to marry, who he's going to have around your baby or her, because women are just as crazy anymore as men are. I have a friend who went through a divorce about 15 years ago, 14 years ago. His wife went crazy. He had two kids. They were Christian. He's still a Christian. She just went off the deep end, and he should have never married her. He married her when he was 31, and she was 19. She was not mature enough. She was insecure and immature and from a weird, broken home. So after about five years of marriage, she divorced him, and then she moved in with her lawyer that did the divorce court. So now my friend had to let his kids stay in the home of the man that just successfully sued him 
and took him for a lot of money. And now he's going to have to pay alimony because his wife wasn't educated and didn't have a job. He took care of everything. And, uh, and oh, by the way, uh, that lawyer was a swinger. So now his wife's involved in swinging. And so the kids get to live around that. Uh, so then she married the lawyer and she got a degree, then she got a master's degree, and then she taught at one of those universities. Uh, but fast forward, his daughter got raped at 16 or 17. Uh, she's now an atheist. The son wants to have nothing to do with dad, but the son now hangs out with the lawyer who's now the ex-husband, the second ex-husband. But he has a good relationship with the, the, the swinger lawyer. It's a mess. It's a mess. My friend has lost his two grown children. He remarried, and he and his wife, who was a missionary to Kenya, uh, they adopted uh, two kids out of foster care. So he kind of has a second family from scratch because he's lost his older two kids because he probably should have never married the 19-year-old when he was 31. Not that the age difference is a game changer, but when she's 19 and you have a master's in engineering, there's a big difference. And he was probably just a little hasty. So the question is, have you learned and mastered how to please the Lord? And is the person you're interested in, have they learned and mastered how to please the Lord? And then we, of course, last week we talked about jobs. Do you have a job? Does she have a job? Get a J-O-B job. Because <laughs> you're going to have to work in this life. You can't build a marriage on welfare. And you shouldn't be allowed to. Look at Song of Solomon. I'm going to read this to you, the New Century Version. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. This will be my last verse. Just talking about relationships, just basic stuff here. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Mature people don't tell folks they're ready to date. Mature people ask for judgment. Mother, do you think I'm mature enough to date? Daddy, do you think I'm ready to date? Are you sure? I don't feel like I'm ready, Dad. I trust you, Dad. I trust you, Mom. Huh. Yeah. Elders, do you think I'm ready to date? Elders, I really like this girl. Do you think I got what, it, what she needs? Do you think I, I provide you? You've known the, her. Do you think I have what it takes? Do you think I'm a good fit? How about... Is she worth pursuing? Sometimes she's not worth pursuing. Sometimes we know she's crazy. Doesn't matter if she's been here longer than you. She may be crazy. She just smiles real pretty. Could be. Should ask. Hire a PI. Private investigator. I want to get the lowdown if she's crazy. I want to get the lowdown if he's crazy. This is why you don't go to a mega church to date because you don't, that pastor doesn't know those people. Listen to me when I tell you, I've been around the world, not to Asia, but Africa a lot, Europe a lot, South America, Mexico. I've seen the other cultures. I'm no anthropologist, but I've been in the churches to see how the church does things. The West is the most messed up when it comes to courtship. We are so flippant, so cavalier, so, so fly by the seat of our pants. We treat relationships, I don't know, there's no fad we blow through as fast as we do relationships. And overseas, 
where the church fears God. If a boy likes a girl, he initiates contact. And he goes through his father or his mother and the elders and the pastor. And if the woman goes to another church, he inquires of her through the elders and the pastor because they know her and they know the spiritual DNA and and they know him and they know the spiritual DNA and they can see long-term, is this going to work? And they have a powwow because we're going to do this thing for God. We're not doing this thing behind mom and dad's back. We do this thing for God because it's forever because we're going to bring children into this earth that are going to have to inherit this earth after us and we want to make sure they have holy spiritual DNA and they're not just some Sunday morning only tramp, spiritual tramp. I'll tell you a story. Years ago when I was single and I was a youth pastor, I, uh, the church right down the street from me was a big spirit-filled church and Dr. Dufresne was preaching there so I wanted to go see him. And so as it was, Pastor Vaughn, he was alive in those days and some of the others from church here came to Knoxville to see Dr. Dufresne so I got to hang out with the pastor for a couple nights. And, but I noticed... Uh, the church was a large church, about a thousand people that had a big choir. And I remember seeing this really pretty girl in the choir. Now, mind you, I'm 26, 27, hadn't met Miss Manda. So just to set the setting. We good? <laughs> I felt like we were. This pretty girl, you know, she's got a choir robe on, so there's not lust there. Just pretty girl. She's in the house of God. I'm in the house of God. This is where you look for your mate, house of God. So I noticed her. She's in the choir. I only went for two or three nights. And, um, you know, you're a single guy and you're always, when you're a single guy and you don't want to be single, anybody that's pretty and in the house of God, that could be her. <laughs> is that how we think? That's how the women think. Is that him? Is that, yeah, nothing wrong with that. And uh, so I remember specifically, I guess she worked at a dentist because Dr. Dufresne called her out laid hands on her. And he said, I want to thank you. You took real good care to me today when I was at your dentist. And she, and he said, she took real good care of me helping the dentist. I guess Dr. Dufresne had to have some, he's a minister, by the way, if you don't know who that is, he was a minister preaching. He's passed away too. He had to have some dental work done while he was in town. So I gathered, she was a dental hygienist or something. So he lays hands on her. She falls out. So after service, uh, we're kind of fellowshipping. It's a big kind of auditorium sanctuary. And she happens to be standing right over there. And I was like, wow, she's right there. I could go talk to her. Then Pastor Vaughn comes right here and bumps into me. And he says, you see that girl right there? Like the one, like I've been seeing all week. I said, yes, sir. He said, she's real pretty, Chris. I said, yes, sir, she is. He said, she's real pretty. Chris. Yeah, she is, Pastor. And he said a third time, Pastor, you know, she's as pretty as a peach. I remember him saying that, pretty as a peach. I thought, well, she's not shaped like a peach. That's kind of why I think she's pretty, you know. (laughs) Just my personal taste, you know. Um, And that's all he said. I said, why are you telling me this, Pastor? He said, well, I'm just, I said, you're not just this. You're Pastor Vaughn. You always got something cooking. I don't know what he's trying to tell me, but he's trying to tell me something. So I went and prayed about it. And now, just so you know, I don't operate that way. I'll just tell you, quit looking at her. You don't even know nothing about her. And that was his point. You know nothing about her. All you know is she's pretty. You know nothing. That was his point. You know nothing about her. I wish, you know, I'd grab him. Why don't you just say you know nothing about her? Move on. <laughs> nothing to see here, pig. Move on. Just move on. <laughs> and so it was like a couple months later, I was back at the church. She was nowhere to be found. 
and nothing ever obviously came of it. This is what happens when you walk by sight and you assume because they're in the house of God and they're pretty, they catch your eye that they're going to serve God with you. So here's my verse, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7. I'm going to read it to you out of the New Century Version. Do not awaken or excite my feelings of love until it's time. Do not awaken or excite my feelings of love until it's ready. That's a verse for every one of us that's single. You've got to know when it's time to awaken those feelings. Until then, that means you put a guard on it. You can restrain your emotions. All these verses have taught us what to do, and it had nothing to do with our emotions. We honor our mother and father even when we don't feel like it. We entreat the elders as fathers even when we don't feel like it. We treat the young men as brothers when we don't feel like it. We respect our husbands even when we don't feel like it. We love our wives with the love of God even when we don't feel like it. And we restrain our exciting feelings of love even when we want to just let it go and just let it run on down the happy road of, oh, I feel good again. Oh, my heart, my heart. Oh, yeah, how many guys have made it do that? So you're not really faithful to anybody. You're just faithful to a feeling. So you're going to be that way when you get married because that feeling will wear out when you get married too. That's why they always ask the folks, how did you keep the fire alive for so long? Lots of flamethrowers and gasoline. <laughs> we still chase each other, but it's a little slower. And then we're tired and don't know what to do. And I, what were we doing? Was I looking for the remote? <laughs> we need to look to the Word of God to know how to care for every one of our relationships. Concerning the most volatile time of our life, that's our singlehood when we don't want to be single or maybe uh, when, when we're insecure, we have to ask ourselves the important question, have I learned how to please God? Have I learned how to? Because if I haven't learned how to please God yet, I don't need a boyfriend. I don't need a girlfriend. I'm not ready to court. If I haven't learned how to please God, what do I have to offer? Let's pray this together. Father, I submit to your word. Help me with all my relationships. Show me what the word has to say about them. Help me obey your word that your love would be manifest. I need your love in all my relationships. And I endeavor to glorify you with all the people I know. Help me be content. Help me be humble. And help me glorify you. Bless my family. And bless my walk with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.